BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 265. Did you enjoy the Queen's Gambit? Well, we're going to talk about it in this episode because I have an actual Chess champion Jennifer Shahade is a two-time U.S. women's chess champion, an author, a speaker, and a professional poker player. She was the first woman to win the U.S. Junior Open, and she hosts two award-winning podcasts, The Grid and Ladies' Night. Knight, Ladies' Night. The Grid won a Global Poker Award for the best poker podcast in the world. She has written for The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, and she is the author of Chess Queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time. Jennifer is our guest in this episode. And before we get into the interview, I'd like to tell you a little bit about one of the women she writes about in the book. In Chess Queens, Jennifer writes about how in 1937, in simmering Austria, Vera Minchik and Sonia Graf faced off against each other in a game of chess, but not just any game of chess. These were two of the greatest chess players of all time, facing off for the first time. It was the Women's World Championship, which had been founded a decade earlier in 1927 by the International Chess Federation, itself founded in 1924. Jennifer writes about how the two women had very different playing styles, very different ways of being, even sitting. Sonia Graf chain-smoked and ate candy during breaks, attacked early and often, while Vera sat with her hands in front of her and remained stoic, barely moving a single muscle, never revealing an emotion on her face. Barely 30 years old, Minchik won an overwhelming victory and earned her seventh world title, but it was the last time the two would meet, not because they didn't want to and not because the world didn't want them to, but because the world was about to be at war. Vera was born in Moscow. She started playing chess at nine, and by 14, she was playing in tournaments, adding chess to her many other passions. Her family fled Russia during the revolution, settling in Hastings, England, where she joined the chess club there in 1923, and she started playing among men, and it was a sensation. She was an immense talent, and in 1927, she played at the first Women's World Chess Championship in London, where she won. She won the next six. Like I said, she was also playing among men. In 1929, she famously faced off against Marcel Duchamp, 
a famous artist who once photographed himself playing chess against a completely nude American writer, Eva Babbitts. His game against Vera Minchik, however, ended in a draw. In the book, you learn that in 1940, the London Chess Center was bombed. The war had come and the Blitz was destroying London. Vera and her husband survived in their basement, but Rufus, her husband, eventually fell ill and died in 1943. The next June, a bomb fell from a Nazi airplane and landed directly on their house, killing Vera, her mother, and her sister, and destroying all of her possessions, all of her letters, all the records she'd kept of all of her games. They had hunkered down in the basement like so many times before, even though there was a bomb shelter across the street. She was 38 years old. In Chess Queens, Jennifer Shahade shares many of the things written about Vera Menchik after her death, and most of them heralded her achievements. They described it as a great and terrible loss. But one stuck out to me for its backhandedness. Grandmaster Sallow Floor, who lived all the way to age 75, passing away in 1983, once said, Vera Minchik was the first woman to play chess like a man. Now, this astonishment among men that women could play at their level was there from the very beginning, and it persists to this day. That's something that Jennifer wants you to know. In fact, in 2009, she recreated that naked photograph stunt by Marcel Duchamp, except in her photograph, she's facing a naked man. And as she writes in the book, quote, the chess set used for the game was also composed of carved nudes, and I used the queen to execute a frontal checkmate. Jennifer Shahadi. I am an author. I'm the author of Chess Queens. I'm a chess champion and I'm a professional poker player. I did not expect your book to mess with me as much as it did. Like I've got my notes sitting over here to make sure I ask you some of the questions that I don't want to forget, but I'll never get to all the stuff that I've written out. But I want to start with some of these bizarre things that men throughout history have said about how women shouldn't be able to play chess because of this, that, and the other. All these justifications for for you, how you already feel about women that you can then uh, express through the thing that you like doing that it bothers you women are doing it. American Grandmaster William Lombardi, women are not a, as good at chess as men because they're more interested in men than chess. This famous champion, Emery, he liked to always call the queen the bitch just to be, you know, naughty. Uh, Nigel Short uh, said that women have no killer instinct. That's why they're not as good at chess. Uh, women have to worry about being moms. Uh, there was an extensive portion of people who were talking about menstruation as being a problem. Reuben Fine, a subconscious urge to kill your father is something that all men have. And women don't do that. Also, men are worried about masturbating. So that's why they are, that it's hard for them to touch the pieces in a certain way. This is bonkers. I'm not even telling, I'm not even saying everything that you say in the book. You found a way through the, your passion, your obsession, the thing that, you, that you've devoted so much of your life to, to see how 
this underrepresentation gets justified in all these different ways. And then if I'm reading the book the way I think you intended me to read it, yeah, that's probably true in a whole bunch of other places, and let's talk about it. I'm just going to open there. Am I in the right place with what you were going for? Oh, yeah, I love that. I'm, there, is, there is one favorite that you missed, which was the one about how um, the, the strain of lifting the pieces might, oh. <laughs> might be too much, right? <laughs> these like, these, like wow. little, little wood pieces. Yeah, okay. so that, was, that was in London, actually, at the first ever Women's International Tournament, um, so in the late 1800s. So that one was, was quite funny as well. But yeah, because it, it really defines pseudoscience, right? Like they see the effect um, or the result that women aren't playing chess as much as men. And the woman, women who do play, um, you know, obviously, since there's so fewer of them, few of them get to like the grandmaster of world championship level, right? So they take the conclusion and then they try to like reverse engineer the explanation. And some of the explanations are just so wild. But yeah, it's exactly the opposite of science, right? It's like taking the conclusion and then coming up with a creative way to explain why it is. Yeah, and, and some of them are, are very amusing, you know, but it's still not science. The rest of the interview with Jennifer Shahadi after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy 
with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. How did this become your passion how this become your obsession like wh- how does one fall into the world of one day i'm going to be a chess champion i think for so many people especially for women i've noticed is that they get into it via their families and then like the second option especially now that chess has 
being kind of recognized as an educational tool all over the world. Like in Armenia, it's a required class in school. Um, in the United States, there are many, many cities that have like chess as like a classroom activity, especially for elementary school, meaning that it's like not just an after school program, that like you actually learn it during the school day. So those are the two ways, generally your family or your school. And then like the third way, which certainly been more popular lately with like the boom of like chess streamers making millions of dollars and the Queen's Gambit becoming like the number one show on Netflix is, you know, you watch some cultural piece uh, that deals with chess or you watch the world champion play and you're inspired to learn via that. So those are like the three ways. But I have noticed that for women and girls, it does seem a lot of the time it comes from a parent or a grandparent, uh, probably because there is fewer of us. So that kind of built in structure of support is really important. So my father was a championship chess player and my older brother was also a championship chess player. And it's funny because you do a lot of work on genius. And um, I know that's a big interest of yours. And one of the things I write about in my book is that I actually didn't get into chess right away because my brother was so smart and so quick at learning things that he became like the number one chess master in Pennsylvania, the youngest ever by the time he was 14 years old. Um, I was so much slower at learning. So I found that very intimidating at first, um, even though my brother was not at all dismissive. He was actually pretty supportive. He wanted me to keep playing. But to me, it was like a little intimidating because I even had people say to me, like, your dad's a master, your brother's a master. Why are you so weak at this age? Like, it seems like with surrounded by all these great chess players, you should be better than you are now. And, you know, of course, I took that to heart. So I kind of like gave up chess for a few years. Uh, but I got back into it in large part because I started to understand that chess wasn't just a sport and a competition. Yes, in the way that it's structured. That is probably the primary category I put it into. But when you study it, it's also a lot like an art. And you see that in the, the Queen's Gambit so beautifully that the chess pieces become so absorbing. You get into a flow experience and, you know, finding a beautiful checkmate feels a lot like, you know, like art. I mean, that was I, I, I later became a writer and I also do some video art projects. So I found that experience in other worlds. But for me, chess was the first time that I felt that, like feeling that you were creating something from nothing, um, you know, just in your brain. Um, Marcel Duchamp loved chess for that reason, that he felt like it was this like pure art experience that, you know, you were creating um, just, just in your brain. Um, so once I realized that, I got hooked and um, it became less important that I was lower rated, um, that I was a little slow. All of that wasn't really as important. And of course, then I skyrocketed up. <laughs> and that, that, of course, is, is the nature of the beast. When you become obsessed with the process, you generally have really, really good results. Yeah. And when yeah. you're super obsessed and self-conscious about results, a lot of times they come slowly, right? When we say you are a chess champion, and this is, part of, this is an obsession, it's part of your life, your profession, for someone who's not familiar with this, I don't think that really communicates how much you have to play chess. <laughs> like... When you were like, like even in your teens, you were doing tournaments. It's like six hours of chess a day. Yeah, you have to organize when you eat and drink and do things around hours and hours of this. I just wonder, what's the downtime like? Do you 
how much do you replay chess in your mind? How much do you uh, consider it in the quiet moments? How much does it rush in on you when you are not asking for it? Or are you able to just like flick a switch and you're like, okay, I'm not in chess mode anymore? Mm, good question. I mean, I've always been so interested in creative fields like writing. So I felt like if I had a bad chess tournament, I would crave going back to some other world. Um, yeah, it was really important because otherwise the obsession would just like, would drive you crazy. Yeah, for sure. Um, it would just make it so that having a bad tournament was just so painful. It would linger and linger. Um, but yeah, it can be hard to turn off for sure. Um, it can be hard to sleep after a long chess game. Now I play poker professionally. I, I feel the same way about poker. Like the different combinations of hands that you have are very difficult to get out of your head. You know, Elon Musk tweeted a couple of times about like how, how, how wild it is that like chess is so popular considering that like we have video games. Mm-hmm. I think that was literally like the tweet, like why is chess so popular? Like we have video games now. And I, I have a couple of things to say about that. One is that, you know, one of the great things about chess is it's so old that nobody owns it. Right. Mm. So it's like actually pre-capitalism in like that way. Like, you know, nobody's like making, of course people make chess sets and sell them. But nobody owns like the right to sell chess sets. Like imagine how much worse it would be for chess if somebody was just like allowed to do that and you had to pay them every time you like try to sell something that had chess on it. Mm-hmm. So that's like super cool about chess. And that's one reason why I think it's really popular. And the other is that it's like a time machine, you know, it's been around for so long. So kind of regardless of whether or not the rules are perfect, which, you know, they're probably the harmony of chess is really stood the test of time. So they're probably pretty close to perfect considering like the basic uh, parameters of like the eight by eight grid, right? Um, And the concept of checkmate. So they're probably close. Um, In fact, AlphaZero did some experiments with the rules of chess to see if they could like make a better chess. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say what better would be, but if you try to define what better is, like more entertaining, more fun, um, they tried to see if these rules are the most perfect ones. But, you know, regardless of that, even if you could make slightly better chess rules, you still wouldn't have the games of like Bobby Fischer, Vera Menchik, you know, all these greats, the games of Napoleon who played chess, Benjamin Franklin, you wouldn't have these games. So you wouldn't be able to like replay them um, in the same way, they would be different roles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is so cool. So that's actually one of the things I I tweeted when Elon Musk wrote that. It was like, well, maybe Esperanto is the best language, <laughs> but you know, like we nice. we, we speak yeah. English, we play chess, right? Uh, there's a portion of the book you talk about the queen and uh, the evolution of chess, as uh, we know it, where it comes from and how it mutated over time. I had no idea that the uh, there used to not be a queen in chess. There's all sorts of weird stuff about like the when the, the kings shouldn't stand next to each other because of some sort of uh, heteronormative, like, don't touch me, bro stuff. I want to talk about the evolution of the queen as a, as a piece. The The queen used to not be the queen. It used to be the furs. Is that is that how you say it? Uh, and, uh, the, the worm tongue, the advisor who was like telling the, the king what to do. And then when they did make it into a piece, it wasn't as powerful a piece as it is today. And then changing that over time changed how the game works. So I'd love to hear more about that. Oh yeah. The queen became the most powerful piece around 1500 and it changed the game enormously because it was really hard to checkmate before. So the number of moves it took to win a game much longer, like hundreds of moves. Um, in fact, they, people started from like later positions because 
it would just take too long to try to give a checkmate without this queen. And so um, speeding up the game, there was experimentations with different role sets. And one was to make the queen the most powerful piece. And at first the game was called the crazy woman's chess game, mad woman chess game. And uh, yet it was widely adopted. Um, Fortunately, it kind of um, emerged at the same time as the printing press. So the rules spread more Mm. quickly than they could have been able to before. And um, of course, um, once it became chess as we know it, um, the mad woman was dropped. So the the hysterical woman who made the game so much better wasn't really given credit. (laughs) Yeah, there's all sorts of weird things they'd say. You you say in the book how... uh, that the to keep the queen cons- to to maintain these gender ideas just to, to make keep the woman weak they would say well she moves diagonally because she's sneaky she moves diagonally because she's sinister and she's up to things that, for me that feels like a really important point of the uh how get, creating the queen created the game but also at first there was pushback against, well, do, do I have to think differently about what these are metaphors for? <laughs> One of the chapters in your book is just called Playing Like a Girl. The idea that you could play chess like a man or play chess like a girl, uh, you explore that deeply and you don't leave it behind in that chapter. You, exp- you go back to it several times throughout the book. What does that sp- mean? What do you mean play chess like a girl? How could anybody even suggest such a thing? Mm, yeah, well... You t- you spoke at the beginning of the interview about all these conceptions of like why women aren't as good at chess as men or don't play it as often. And one of the most popular ones is that they're not aggressive enough. They don't have a killer instinct. Often people try to translate that into pseudoscience by talking about how like they don't have enough um, testosterone levels, so they're not aggressive enough. And I um, therefore like colloquially it would be kind of like throwing like a girl like oh like playing like a girl means that like you're not aggressive that you don't go for like the checkmate or you don't go for the attack or the sacrifice um and of course knowing of all these stereotypes when i got seriously into the game i wanted to be the exact opposite and play as aggressively as possible and then i started studying with some russian trainers because i got so good that i got invited to the olympiad and I got to study with these greats. And then they looked at some of my games and they were like, you play like such a woman. You never, you know, have no patience. You just want to get the game over with. So I was like, damn it. You can't win. Yeah. You can't win. They'll get you it's either like, way. Yes, they will. Exactly. They will. And, you know, honestly, I do think that you see this um, in poker. It's really interesting that you see like a similar effect, but in poker, because, um, like your opponent and what they think of you is like really important to the game in chess. It's not so important um, because at the end of the day, it's so much about just finding objectively the best move, especially at the higher levels. So my opponent can think whatever they want about me in chess <laughs> and it's, it's going to matter in some respect, especially about opening choices. Mm-hmm. But honestly, we're playing each other's pieces more than we're playing each other. Yeah. In the opening preparation, there's like a big metagame, but the game itself, there's some psychology. And I point out like those moments in the book. Um, But in poker, it's like all about that. It's like, if you think that I'm going to play differently because I'm a woman, that is incredibly important to my strategy. I have to absolutely change my strategy to accommodate that, right? Um, Whereas in chess, it's like, if I just play the best moves, I'll beat you anyway. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that is interesting. And you will see like that there are a lot of deviations that people make if they're playing a woman. Sometimes they really want to bluff you. And sometimes they don't want to bluff you at all. 
So you kind of have to figure out who's who and what their conceptions are. <laughs> That's great. I love that they're like, okay, I'm going to, this is my thinking. All right, I'm playing a woman. That means I'm going to try to intimidate her. But she also knows what I'm doing because I'm a chess player. Okay, now I'm, now I'm playing chess. I'm playing meta chess with her. So she knows that I'm going to try to intimidate her. So I'm not going to try to yeah, intimidate right. her. But she probably knows But she probably knows that I know that she knows. So and then now you're spinning off in this thing, which I would assume kind of gives you an advantage, right? It, like, like, haha, you're having to think all this stuff. And I'm just going to sit here and play the game. Yeah, and all those levels, we call those levels. You know, the princess, the bride thing. Um, you're thinking that I'm thinking that you're thinking that I'm thinking. I mean, at some point, um, the, the, if you if you take that to its natural conclusion, um, what you need to do in poker is what we call a mixed strategy. So sometimes bluff and sometimes don't, <laughs> because you don't you can't actually predict what level somebody is on. Randomize your signals. That's cool. Yes, exactly. That is what you have to do, and that's what high stakes poker is a lot about. It's not about bluffing or calling or raising. It's about doing all of those things at the appropriate frequencies. That is so. I, I, I'm supposed to be talking to you about your book, but I, I'm starting to feel the urge to just nerd out on this stuff. Uh, uh, forgive me. The I had someone on the show a, a long time ago, uh, Dave Epstein. He wrote a book about the debunking sort of the 10,000-hour rule. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about chess because I, uh, I love watching uh, fighting games at a very high-level play because uh, that, that was my obsession as a teenager. Like, And when you get really, really good at a fighting game, you – you're doing the same thing you would do in chess in the sense that you have a really good idea of like, if I do this, they must do this. And you can, and the best fighting games give you opportunities to chain your, your plan out for long, for long, really long term. I had always wondered about, I'm thinking 12 moves ahead that, that uh, meme that has been around forever. When people talk about chess, like, aha, he was playing more, more moves ahead than you were, or she was. See, there I am engendering things. The, Truth, according to Epstein, was that uh, if you practice this long enough, you will just notice certain patterns, and, you, and it's, there's an intuition that you're granted where you're seeing the future of it, and the other person's doing the same thing, which, and that, that shifts as you go into phases of the game. You talk about this in terms of tactics and strategy. I don't know. I just want to hear you talk about it on the show, the, oh, yeah, the idea that you're like, this one thing is going to obliterate the person, but now, uh, just so I can get into a certain position for the next thing, but now that I'm looking at the board... Well, naturally, in 12 moves, this is going to happen. We all know that. Like, But they also know that. So, like, the branching starts to go into, like, the there are four possibilities, turns into 10 billion trillion possibilities, and now we're playing in that space. And that seems really exciting to me. I'm just imagining what it's like to wade into that possibility space against another human brain. Well, I think one of the fascinating things about chess and one of the misconceptions, which is actually a topic of my next book, which is called Thinking Sideways. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big misconceptions about chess players is that they think lots and lots of moves ahead all the time. It is true in rare cases that we'll think like 10, 12 moves ahead. But really what we do better than players who are weaker than us is we think sideways, which means that we think at more, more possibilities on this move and also like the move next and the next move. So if you think three moves ahead, but you're looking at like six possibilities on each move, that's actually more moves than thinking 12 moves ahead, right? Yeah. And that is where you're going to get your advantage, right? Uh, because uh, a lot of times... There's um, a creative move that your opponent just won't see. And this is why even rudimentary computers used to be humans um, quite um, often, because they would just see weird moves that we wouldn't notice. 
So it's actually kind of like expanding your options in a lot of ways. It'll make you better. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is that it's just so easy to get caught in tunnel vision. Um, and your opponent is probably like expecting you to do one thing. And then if you do like move B or C or D that they didn't look at, they're just going to be shocked. And then also they're exhausted because they might have wasted a lot of time looking like six moves ahead at the move they were expecting. Um, and so when you play a different move, everything they looked at is totally wasted. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's 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 really a, a big point in chess that I think people underappreciate. And I think as a metaphor for life, it's really important, too, that looking five, six years ahead, trying to plan out many, many um, steps in advance is um, often comforting, but also uh, potentially limiting, right? That if we were able to like see all the options that we have, rather than getting fixated on one and trying to optimize for it, um, maybe we could be even happier. I think this is so cool. I, that's a cool book idea. I think that is really, really rad. The, I love chess, but I have not even in the same universe as where you are with this. But I think about the terms of like thinking of 12 moves ahead, you're thinking of, I'm thinking of different chess boards ahead yeah. and they branch out like multiple timelines in the future, but, and they really are that you really are thinking about these counterfactual timelines that are spreading out from the current moment is being better at that than your opponent, a sort of a guaranteed route to success. Or is there, there are other ways that I, I always assume that the person who's better at imagining different chess boards is the person who's the superior player. But is there some other thing that is important that I don't know about at all because I don't know anything about what I'm talking about that is just equally something you must be good at in chess to be perform at your level? Well, I think you're right that that's a big part of it. Probably the largest part, the ability to imagine other the, the possibilities and to consider more options and then evaluate them correctly. Um, all of that, that's kind of what we call like calculation slash visualization. Um, we also call it the middle game. But there's also there's also just preparation, which can you can actually memorize some things. So you can remember memorize the beginning of the game and the end of the game a little bit. And so if you have those chunks memorized better than your opponent, even if they're better at imagining things, you might be able to beat them. The skill of being able to visualize better than your opponent is probably the most important skill. But then there's also knowledge, right? Like if I know the Sicilian way way better than you, then I might just get such a good position. But even if you're more skilled than me, you're still going to lose. Oh, that's so neat. So in the early game, there's a lot of constants because early game is more restricted. And, there's yes. more, and there are more things that are common in the later game because the end results of the pieces is more restricted. Like, I realize I'm, I'm asking this like a child because I Oh, I yeah, am. no, that's fine. But it, yeah. But in the middle, that's when there are bazillions of variations to the point that it's a game that we'll play for probably forever and ever. We'll be we'll be circling Jupiter and, and playing chess on the way there. That's really fascinating to me. And that's why like Magnus Carlsen's the greatest chess player of all time because the middle game, he's never been known for his openings. Um, but one interesting thing that he's done in his career is he's tried to make games last longer, you know, so that his ability to use his skill is more likely to come to the fore. This was very different than Gary Kasparov, who used to just like try to get a great opening and just knock people out. No, Magnus is much more of like trying to just like make the game long because he knows his skill will ultimately prevail if he does that. Wow, that's such a crazy meta, meta, meta strategy. Yeah. When I was a kid, we had Kasparov's game. It was the, a, uh, you'd make a move and every once in a while, the, the, a quick time video would come up and, and uh, Kasparov would say, hmm clever and then he would disappear and you felt like you were playing against them 
I hope you do that one day. That you should have your own game. I want to ask. Uh, there was one thing I was going to mention, but we can skip past it. But I, I was blown away and uh, surprised that there was. Uh, you talk about sexualization in chess. That the some of the first sponsors for women only tournaments were these very strange sponsors. You showed me a lot of stuff that I would never thought I would ever apply to chess. Though I should have, because the Queen's Gambit was very much like that. A lot of male gays in that show. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was. Uh, but I still loved it. There's so oh, yeah. many things about it that were really never portrayed before on camera. Like the beauty of chess. I don't think that had really been portrayed before like that. You know, yeah. that it was a beautiful game. Um, and also that it was a glamorous game. So I, I, I felt like it really helped me be able to convey to people what chess means. What was the lawsuit about uh, for people who had never oh, heard about yeah. that? Oh yeah. There was a lawsuit because they, at some point, um, the, uh, a commentator in the, um, in the match where Beth Harmon is playing Borgov says that, 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 um, Beth is the first person to ever play at this level. There was Nona Gafford Nashvili, but she was a woman's grandmaster and only played against women. Um, in fact, Nona Gafford Nashvili was literally the first female to earn the overall grandmaster title. So, and she was the only real chess player, um, living chess player, I believe, that was mentioned in the entire series. So when she caught wind of this, she was, of course, very offended. Because to imagine, imagine making history as the first female ever to do something and then for them to say the exact opposite in the script. It is, it's definitely upsetting. Um, and so she sued Netflix for defamation. And um, I think the, the case is still underway. Yeah, it's and a lot I, of money too. It's like millions of dollars. I mean, I completely think that she's obviously a great, she's featured in my book. Um, that said, I, I do feel like um, artists and writers, like in fiction in particular, like need to have some kind of ability to make mistakes. Like, you know, it's, it's really easy to mess things up. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. How many times did you have your book edited and there's still errors? It's brutal. Uh, believe me. <laughs> Once you create in that way, you do have a little bit more sympathy when, when like, what seems like grotesque errors come up. It's, like, understandable in a way. But I do feel like because the show was so popular, um, at the very least, I was very, very excited. Like, as, I'm not a legal expert, so I have no real opinion on, like, how the lawsuit's going to go or who's going to win or who should win. But I am certainly happy that like it went viral because now everybody knows that she was the first grandmaster. So <laughs> yeah, in the end, in the end, that's what true. I want. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I know I've burned up all, almost all of our time talking about uh, the things that were really fascinating to me, or the things that I, I was very eager to talk to you just because your expertise is something that I find super fascinating. Um, most of the book, a big meaty portion of the book, is are you go through the history of women chess players and. And you go from culture to culture, country to country, and you also talk about non-binary, transgender uh, chess players. I like that part because you tie it into the uh, when the pawn reaches the other end, it turns into you, most people make it into a queen. I think I don't know if the rules are you have to always make it into a queen. No, you don't. But it's like ninety-nine percent because it's the most powerful piece. There's just yeah. rare, rare cases. I think it's like half a percent that you would make it into like a knight because you get a check because a knight moves differently than a queen. So sometimes you're checking and you need that check or occasionally a rook because of something we call the stalemate rule, which uh, for, nobody's, nobody's got to understand except a few uh, uh, big chess aficionados. <laughs> uh, there, there are more of them though. I'm telling you, they're growing. That's so cool. I love the, uh, you talk about when this rule was established. There was a, 
there's a cultural there are cultural pushbacks of like yeah, it's a queen mm-hmm. but it's not actually a woman queen we have to name it something else because exactly. we can't turn a dude into a lady that was a whole thing i know it's amazing and now we have these conversations today where people don't want to accept that trans women are women that they're like oh well they're women but they're like a different like they're not women like it's just it's weird how like these this obsession with categorization right mm-hmm. um makes people so reluctant to uh accept you know somebody's uh gender identity you talk about how sometimes genius sometimes a passion obsession can be mistaken for genius or the words can get uh weird and mucky as you try to figure out which one is which and there's so much you talk about in the book there's so much emphasis is in professional chess that s- seeing someone as a genius chess player versus what you talk about, about I put a lot of work into this. I think about this a lot. I got to the point where this was something I really, really, really was into. And some of, there are some elements in there about IQ and all the other stuff that you were mentioning with your brother. But the, when it comes to women in chess, there are factors that can pull you away from the obsession or things that we expect will pull women away from the obsession. I'd like to hear more about your take on all that. Oh, yeah. Well, for sure. And, you know, I don't think until I until recently I, I really realized the extent um, to which women are um, often pulled in other directions, which make it less likely for them to be able to fully immerse themselves in like the flow experience, which is really a prerequisite for chess success. Um, I think the number one thing that you need as a strong chess player is the ability to concentrate and focus. And when you are playing in a tournament and more people are looking at you, more photographers are looking at you, um, more people are questioning whether you belong there, how you got there, um, if you um, are being asked out and hit on constantly because there is a 10 to 1 ratio of men to women. Um, that, of course, all of that is distracting, right? So you need to figure out a way to emerge yourself in the flow. Um, and then beyond that, beyond that like kind of structure of just the event itself, there's, of course, uh, the world at large, which generally um, doesn't give women, gender minorities, the same ability to um, take big, big swaths of time off to play in competitive chess events, right? So mm-hmm. a greater responsibility for childcare, for emotional labor, all of that stuff is going to add up to fewer chances to pursue something like chess um, at the level that you need to, at the, the time commitment that you need to, to be like number one. And of course, there are, as Chess Queen shows, there have been many women who've been up to the challenge. <laughs> yeah. There's so many women in this book and they're all cool. They're all like super badass. Like their lives are incredible. Each one of these people are like that you detail the book, not to step on your answer, but like they're a whole lot of this book are all these people from history that I've never heard of. And they lived incredible lives and they did, you know, iconoclastic things. Uh, but there's a weird element of, I will pay more attention to you and make sure I comment on the way you look and act and, and portray yourself than I will the other opponents. It's it's really something that's easy not to notice if, you, if you're a person that has the privilege of not facing all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For me, the, the ability to absorb myself completely in chess was such a precious thing. And one of the reasons why I think it's so important for uh, marginalized communities to like play chess and to like promote, promote it to girls, to 
um, children in underserved communities is because that ability to like stop thinking about yourself and, you know, the fact that, you know, you are constantly having to manage your identity because there's so, so many um, issues that you might have to deal with that others don't being able to play chess and just like completely forget about all that and just lose yourself in a world. It's a really precious experience. Mm -hmm. It's like beautiful. It's so great. And it's probably one of the easiest entryways into it. I'm probably music as well. Unfortunately, I never got into music, but I would imagine that like chess and music are both like a very fast entryway into it. It's kind of like ready made for that experience. Mm -hmm. It's like a fish tank, you know, you're just like, it's like, it's like trying to pull you into the flow experience. And I can't think of anything else except probably music that does it so quickly and it has its arms open to everyone. Yeah. And then, and once you learn something like that, you learn that you can do this. So you can laterally apply it to other things. There's a, a grandmaster you talk about uh, in the book. He was defeated and said, well, I lost because she's very well trained. I'm assuming that's the way you talk. I lost because she's very well trained. She's no genius. Name for me one female genius. I can name hundreds of male geniuses. Like, like if women are as smart as men, why aren't there any great female chess players? So, uh, is this still a thing is one question I have. And the other thing is, it's all about sort of this great man theory still seeping into other domains where the idea of having access and privilege to play in a world and get obsessed with something is like, off the table because it's, it's it's hard for people to notice that they're they get to enjoy such a thing i'm just wondering about this genius thing one last bit before we jump into other things is this still thing something that floats around in that world oh yeah definitely 100 percent, it still floats around because in fact i mean i think pe people are a little bit more cautious about the way they phrase things because they know that you know they could get in trouble or they could get misquoted like people are, are maybe more intelligent with the way they present themselves because they understand that social media can be punishing. Um, but no, I still think there's a lot of that out there. You can see it in the way, in what people do, like the types of games that they're interested in. So yeah, people might not say that like women are bad at chess anymore. They might realize like that's a bad thing to say, but will they include women's games in the lessons that they give? Will they study women's games? Will they include it in a book that they're reading? If they have a podcast, will they have, as many women on as men, you know, will they have, will they even attempt to get more women on? Like, I think all these things are showing, will they read books by women? Um, a lot of these things um, are like showing, not telling. So yeah, they might not say anything horrible about women on Twitter publicly, but like, if you look at their Kindle, do they actually read books by women? Right. <laughs> I think like you can see yeah. there, you can see there's, do they care about what women think? You know, um, do they honestly believe women are as smart as men and that have as many brilliant thoughts to offer? Like, I think that is, that's a question that I think a lot of people have to ask themselves. Um, but, and I'm sure they'll get the answer quickly if they actually do read those books by women. <laughs> Let me say, this is a great book to read. For, uh, I, I would encourage men to read this uh, this book, even if you're not into chess, there, this, there are a lot of opportunities. It never stops; it's relentless. Like you are, you you're working the ribs constantly in this book. Like, boo, 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 like, like with no, really. Listen to how many weird things people have said. No, really, look at how many of these women have gone through this process and still ongoing. I want to ask a, a look about women only tournaments versus mixed gender tournaments. What are some of the criticisms that come around and what are your responses to those criticisms? Well, I think especially for girls, um, the reason to have girls only competitions is just because 
uh, su- supply and demand. Like we started to host them in the United States, especially around like early 2000s. And they were like immediately extremely popular. So girls just liked them and more girls were playing chess. Now uh, the numbers are still kind of bad. Like it maybe used to be 5% and then it like went up to 15%. So that doesn't sound that great. Like 15% of girls playing chess, um, but it's triple, right? So it shows that like they really enjoy these girls competitions. Um, And if you pulled them away, there will be even fewer girls playing chess. Uh, So that's really the main reason in my view, they enjoy it. And Probably there's a lot of reasons for that. When you ask them, a lot of people say that it's because they want to make friends with other girls. Sometimes it's because they feel like intimidated or threatened at um, events that are mixed gender because they're one of only 10 boys. I mean, there's there's 10 boys for every one girl. Um, In my own experience, I can say that like when I was a kid playing chess, uh, when I came back to it, I was one of the only girls. And I was in high school at the time, so I was already kind of like, oh, that's cool to be like the only girl. But in like elementary school and junior high, it's not as cool. You actually just don't like it. It's not not that pleasant. You kind of want your girl gang in many cases. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that there's a tremendous argument for having girls events at the scholastic level. At the professional level, I still think it's really valuable because it gives a lot of opportunities for women to shine, to make money, to travel the world. And so that we can showcase the best female players of all time, right? Best female players that are playing. Um, The negative side of it is that um, sometimes the messaging can be twisted that people are like constantly asking, um, why are there women's tournaments? Because like chess is a brain game. So women and men should be able to compete on an equal field. Um, But the sad truth right now is that because there's so few women playing um, and you can't overnight create like a 50-50 ratio, right, of women to men playing chess, um, women have so many fewer role models, they have less time, they have less money to go out and pursue playing chess. So the situation we're in now, if you were to get rid of women's tournaments, you would just have way fewer women playing chess in the the, uh, bright lights. So I think those are all the reasons. And I also think that the way the question is framed is often like framed in a way that really privileges uh, vertical success, right? So it's like, why, um, why aren't they playing together? Not like, why might women just enjoy playing a women's tournament? <laughs> so I think that uh, it's interesting the way that we kind of like see things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that can be kind of a model. Like when I, when I realized that the framing of that question determined how you asked it, it really helped me with like other things as well that, uh, I mean, I, I was I'm reading um, your new book and this idea of like how you ask people questions about how they feel about things. Um, the first questions you ask are so important, right? Oh yeah. Um, instead of, in fact, when you, I was reading the chapter about where, you know, you were talking about how you want to get to people's personal experiences really quickly um, so that if you're trying to like pull them about abortion rights or LGBTQ rights, you want to find out what their personal experience is, because that might be the um, potential for them to really relate to the issue personally. And that could give you an opportunity to change their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you kind of see what I'm saying here is that if you start focusing on emotions, like why might women want to play in separate events? instantly you get more like empathy and more curiosity as opposed to just kind of like anger. Mm -hmm. Like why aren't they playing with the men? Right. 
Yeah, and why and why does that bother you if you are asking the question? Like, like why did that become the question you wanted to ask first? Uh, so I'm glad that you have a book like this. Also, I didn't realize that this book was like a. And to correct me if I'm wrong, this is sort of returning to 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 a take you had in the past and then updating it and enriching it. I like the you talk about this in the, in the introduction. It used to have a different title, and your dad had an even better title for the book. If you could talk about that a minute, I'd love to hear more. Yes, yes, I wrote an earlier like. Um, zygote of this book called Chess Bitch. And um, obviously, like an amazing title. I, I have such a soft spot <laughs> in my heart for Chess Bitch. Such a great title. Yeah. Because it's, it, it kind of epitomizes like, well, the queen is the bitch of the board. She's the boss and she's aggressive. And in chess, like uh, women are often being demeaned for being too aggressive in the world they are. Um, but you wanted to actually embrace that, embrace being the best and being aggressive. And it's so difficult to do. So for me, actually, like I sometimes I feel like I'm too agreeable, too cordial. So um, I actually um, aspired to be more bitchy. And so it was like my <laughs> aspirational title, Chess Bitch. But That's there were gross. like there were a couple issues with the title, um, multiple ones. Um, one of the big ones is like bitch, like the, all that stuff I was talking about, bitch, it really translates extremely poorly. Okay. Yeah. It translates very poorly. It translates really poorly to other countries. So it's problematic because they don't, they don't, it doesn't have all those American, you know, there was this feminist magazine, bitch magazine. There were a number of feminist titles with bitch in the title, but um, in a lot of, a lot of countries where chess is popular, it just did not translate at all. So that was a bit, that was a bit problematic. Um, so yeah, I, I do really like chess queens because also little girls, like their parents can buy it for them. Um, even though there's some adult content in the book, probably like, I, I like to say like 12 plus maybe. So yeah, the, um, the, the book, um, the book has a lot of advantages being called chess queens, but I feel, still feel like there's like a beating heart of chess bitch in it. But yeah, my, my, I was telling my dad that we were going to change the title and he said, well, I've got a great idea for the title. How about checkmate asshole? <laughs> That's a great title. That is a great, great <laughs> title. I love, I, I spend way too much time thinking about titles of anything and, I would pick up the book uh, "Checkmate Asshole" right off the bat. Like it was that's that's a good one. So your dad was right about that. Um, I, yeah, yeah. It, it, it would. The problem is, you know, spam filters are brutal. I want to just mention this because I want to give you a chance to talk about your hero, and then we'll get out of here. You talk about women who who chess champions in war who uh, one woman died in a bombing and and people who were just pushing the envelope and changing the world and changing chess uh, there's so many great characters in here and each you tell each of their stories wonderfully and each one of them has tells a number another aspect of the total theme that you're driving at i want you to, if you give a chance to talk about uh you met your absolute hero of chess and i would like to give you a chance to just talk about this person to the world at large because I just think that's, you could tell the way in the way you wrote it, how much that meant to you and how much this person meant to you and how much this person, you feel like other people should understand their contribution. I'll just sit back and I just want to hear a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Well, the greatest female chess player of all time, Judith Polgar, was such an inspiration to me and honestly, an entire generation of chess players and con continually um, inspiring to both men and women. She's the strongest female player of all time and one of the most best attacking players of all time. She beat... Kasparov, she beat Carlson, she beat 13 different world champions. And, um, you know, she came from a family where it, everything was chess. 
everything was chess. Um, and she was able to leverage that into this career um, where she has inspired millions. I mean, I think every single chess player has been massively inspired by Yuta Pogar, but specifically me, uh, because I changed my openings completely. I wanted to try to play exactly like her. So I, I literally would look at her games and tournaments and like copy her openings, like sometimes with great success. And I adopted them for life. Sometimes I realized that, you know, you need, I, I needed to also use my own style uh, because it wasn't quite working for me. Um, but I got a chance to meet her and yeah, it was a, re- a few times now I've met her, um, several times. And of course it made a massive impact on me, um, because, you know, it's just, uh, she showed, she really changed the questions. You know, people were always asking, will a woman ever be able to be world champion? Now, Judith qualified for the world championships and beat 13 world champions. So the answer is obviously yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so then people would ask another question, will they ever be able to do it as often? But I feel like that's the thing. As soon as you get people to change the question and soften it a little bit, it means you've made great progress. Yeah, that is such a good insight. And I, there are countries where you, if you grow up there, if you if you want to get into chess, you can get funding from the government in all sorts of ways. You can be supported in, in your endeavors. But some people, you if you want to be in this world, you have to really, really, really mean it. And... And you have a part in the book. You don't go. You only put one paragraph to this, but I just wanted to to get you. To, I just want to hear more of what you have to think about this. You say, "I wonder what it'd be like if I hadn't gotten into chess so so much." <laughs> you spend one paragraph on this, but I feel like you've thought about that a good bit. Because if you're not being funded in some other way, and you're not from a super gigantically rich family, and you don't have a uh, a tiger dad or tiger mom when it comes to chess is like no you will be the best you have to really care about it a lot and you have to become super obsessed and you have to stick to it and you have to sacrifice and clearly you've done a lot of this and then you have this paragraph it's like i sometimes wonder what it would be like if i hadn't done this how much have you thought about that and what do you think about it now oh god i think about that a lot for sure i i hope that i would have gotten into something like math because I feel like I, I love this like abstract worlds and math is like such a wonderful tool to understand the world and make it better. I, I got more into math when I got into poker and it's just like math reminds me so much of chess. And I, I feel like that hopefully I would have gotten into that because that I feel like would have been like a parallel where I would have been able to kind of combine my analytical abilities with my creativity What's next on the horizon for you? Uh, I know you have another book. What else are you getting into? I love that you jumped into poker and that you're you're killing it there. So where do you, where do you see your future? Where do you see that you're going to apply all these things that you've learned about how to be aggressive, how to be strategic, how to uh, sacrifice and do amazing things? What's next? Yeah, well, I just want to get my message out to more people and to continue like expanding my worldview and like um, my own knowledge. And I think that one of the reasons I'm getting into poker is because I feel like that's a really good one because a lot of, a lot of people with influence play poker. And, uh, I think that, uh, it's also a really, a really great compliment to chess because it's a metaphor for what is lacking in empowerment. Right. I mean, a lot of times people talk about poker, what makes a great poker player? Like what would be the first thing you would think of when I, when I ask like what makes a great poker player? I would assume it's someone who is, uh, they play against the person more than they play the game. They they're very they're very good at reading other human beings. As, yeah, yeah. 
That's a great answer, but the real answer. Okay. Um, and this is this is how capitalism fools us into thinking like that people are just like naturally talented at thing. The real answer is time and money. Like you can't be a good poker player if you don't have the time and the money to play it. And that's and that is the world right now. A lot of people are not given the ability to create businesses because you know they don't have the access, the education, uh, and if they did, they would do wonders. So like yeah, all, almost all the high stakes poker players right now are white men. Um, and you know, it, why is that? Because they have more time and they have more money. That's, that's the reason. Um, and so I think it's just like, just like chess, it's a great metaphor. I said in chess, why, what's one thing that's holding women back where they're not able to focus as much, right? Because a lot of times they don't have the time to play in tournaments. A lot of times they're not given this gift of like flow experiences from a young age. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, in chess, it's, that's the reason. And in poker, it's like time and money. And I just like want people's eyes to open to those things. Um, like these, uh, these, these, uh, systemic and structural things that underlie why we are not able to harness the full greatness of like society. Like, I think if we could harness more greatness in everyone and it's particularly diversity, um, we would just have a better world. And so that I think that via writing and via like playing games, I want to show more people that. Who is the person you hope buys this book and what do you hope they get, they take away from it? Well, for, for men who are reading it, um, I, I definitely want them to feel empathy because I think it's easy to just like read like, Oh, women are harassed sometimes or underestimated it and just kind of brush it off. But to like really read the stories and see how it happened again and again and again. And that like, you know, women had to like just counter so much to become champions and to like, be passionate about this game and just to pursue it. I think that um, men reading that can really understand more. And that's, that's what I want because I think that can affect real change like when people understand that. Um, and of course, my dream is for many like, you know, girls and, uh, you know, girls from, from marginalized communities, girls who don't believe in themselves, girls who are losing their confidence to read this book and whether it's chess or something else to believe that like they, they can do it and that um, being one of the only people that looks like you, who's great at something is really, really hard, but it's also especially awesome. And when you, when you do it, you're going to feel great. And at some point the floodgates are going to open and you're going to get so many opportunities because of it. So I hope that it's like, just like that little bridge or inspiration for some people. You could follow Jennifer at Jian Shahade on Twitter. That's J-E-N-S-H-A-H-A-D-E on Twitter. The book is Chess Queens, available everywhere. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, check out the link in your show notes or head to youarenotsosmart.com. You'll also find a link to the homepage for How Minds Change with all the podcasts and other places I've been appearing and giving interviews. And you also get a sample chapter. You can sign up for the contest to win a book. And you can watch a video with all the persuasion experts from the book. And you will find a link to my new newsletter. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also on Facebook, it's just slash youarenotsosmart. And if you'd like to support this operation... Specifically, support this podcast, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features. 
go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts will get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other cool stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And check back again in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.